Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on social media at danproftshow, or at danproft. Either one will work. And uh, we begin on uh, this edition with uh, our conversation about the prospect of ACB replacing RBG on the high court, Amy Coney Barrett. And for those who thought that uh, the attack on Amy Coney Barrett uh, that was religious in nature during her confirmation to be an appellate court judge on the Seventh Circuit, that infamous exchange with DiFi that we played earlier in this week, about the dogma living loudly within her. If you thought that they wouldn't go there again, the prospect of trying to undermine her potential nomination, you're wrong. And uh, we have Reuters doing some of the uh, dirty work for the Democrat socialists in uh, this instance, uh, re-raising the uh, issue of people of praise. Uh, The headline in Reuters, a U.S. Supreme Court nomination looms, a religious community, as a U.S. Supreme Court nomination looms, a religious community draws fresh interest. People of Praise, a self-described charismatic Christian community, has faced renewed interest since Trump put forward as one of its, uh, one of his potential nominees, Amy Coney Barrett. The group describes itself, and by the way, she had been identified as a member of People of Praise. She has not confirmed that people of praise will not speak to who is or who is not members. So this is presumed. um, But regardless, uh, Reuters goes on to report the group describes itself as an ultra conservative group with a mixture of Roman Catholic and Pentecostal traditions. And uh, the group declined to confirm whether or or not Barrett was a member uh, since it was uh, reported in The New York Times that she was an unnamed according to unnamed current and former members. Uh, That first line I read in that graph, the group describes itself as an ultra-conservative group. Does it? No, it doesn't. Mm -mm. No. Uh, National Review picked up on this dutifully. Uh, The uh, description as ultra-conservative is the description by the reporter of the group. There (laughs) There is no citation provided to support that characterization, putting it in in a political context, which, of course, the left does. So in the rewritten story, the reference to people of praise being an ultra-conservative group gone, a good catch and a good example of what we're talking about, the uh, subtlety, the misdirection, the distractions that are used to try to do what, of course, the left is going to do, paint... Amy Coney Barrett, as I said, as some sort of uh, Christian theocrat who will use the Bible instead of the Constitution to make her rulings. 
Well, uh, Amy Coney Barrett actually spoke to the roles and responsibilities of a judge uh, at a, a speech in Hillsdale College not long ago. Here's what she had to say. John Adams put aside personal preferences. He stood up to public pressure and he did his duty. And moreover, he did it to the best of his ability. He didn't do his grudging minimal best. He did his absolute best, and the captain was acquitted, and most of the soldiers were, and those who were not escaped the death penalty. Now, John Adams did these things as a lawyer, but adhering to duty in the face of a contrary personal or political preference and in the face of public pressure to the contrary has particular resonance for the job of a judge. A judge is obligated to apply the law as it is and not as she wishes it would be. She's obliged to follow the law even when her personal preferences cut the other way or when she will experience great public criticism for doing so. Mm. Uh, she should uh, cut and paste that excerpt from that speech and uh, uh, offer it up before the Senate Judiciary Committee if there is to be a, a confirmation hearing uh, or in written testimony uh, because that's spot on. Oh, by the way, people of praise. If it was uh, such a ultra conservative organization, it would be odd for Pope Francis, who I don't think many people could legitimately call an ultra conservative, to have named one of its members the Auxiliary Bishop of Portland. Oh, by the way, the smear, the smearing of the Christian bigots. In addition to that, the Reuters reporter, if you go look at his Twitter handle, Award for Excellence in Transgender Reporting uh, or Reporting on Transgender Issues, something to that effect. And I gosh, I wonder if that informs his view of uh, uh, of a, uh, an Orthodox Christian organization. Ben Sass weighed in, senator from Nebraska, of course, uh, calling the uh, invocation of people of praise and, you know, the the insinuations that are obvious calling them outrageous smears. The ugly smears against Judge Barrett are a combination of anti-Catholic bigotry and QAnon-level stupidity, said Sass. People of Praise is basically a Bible study, and just like billions of Christians around the world, Judge Barrett reads the Bible, prays, and tries to serve her community. Senators should condemn this wacky McCarthyism. Is there any other kind? They won't. They will uh, suborn it, is what they'll do, uh, to try to tuber nomination before Saturday and then to try to tube it after Saturday. That's where it's going to come from. And it will come in the form of questions about abortion and questions about gay rights. But it will be unmistakably about the fact that she is a faithful Christian. And so let's have the confirmation hearing, particularly for those like Bill Galtz in the Wall Street Journal warning Republicans that they're playing with fire by having a president do what's been done two dozen times in American history nominate somebody to fill a Supreme Court vacancy in an election year. Woo, so controversial. And the Senate, controlled by the same party as the president, deciding to take up and go ahead and confirm that nomination, vote their shares. So controversial. Uh, Joe Biden uh, was asked about uh, something that's actually controversial emanating from the base of his Democrat Socialist Party, and that's the temper tantrum politics of the Don Lamones of the world. And many others, the only solution to this travesty that uh, may occur in the coming days is to pack the court. If we can't get what we want, 
and we will refuse to accept that elections have consequences when we don't like those consequences, then um, we'll just uh, restructure the whole operation. Joe Biden was asked about that by a uh, reporter at a local CBS affiliate in Wisconsin, WBAY Channel 2 in Wisconsin, and he's not answering that question. Here's why. Let me tell you why I'm not going to answer that question. Because it will shift all the focus. That's what he wants. He never wants to talk about the issue at hand. He always tries to change the subject. But let's say I answer that question. Then the whole debate's going to be, well, Biden said or didn't say. Biden said he would or wouldn't. That's going to, the, this, this, the discussion should be about why he is moving in a direction that's totally inconsistent with what the founders wanted. Their design, the Constitution says design, if voters get to pick the president who gets to make the pick and the Senate who gets to decide. We're in the middle of an election right now, Brittany. You know, people are voting now. By the time this Supreme Court here would be held, if they hold one, would in fact, we probably, it's estimated 30 to 40 percent of the American people already have voted. It is a fundamental breach of constitutional principle. It's nothing of the sort. It's, it's this ridiculous comment to make, as um, I noted when I said this has happened uh, two dozen times in American history. This is hardly unprecedented. Uh, he knows that, too, or at least he used to, doesn't care because it's just all hysterics all the time. Uh, and the fact that uh, some percentage of uh, Americans may have voted, well, that's just uh, the occasion of the push for Democrats to have mail-in voting, the push for Democrats to have even more extended early voting than many states already feature. Um, but, um, you know, in the um, now immortal worlds of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, the president is the president for the full term. There is no magic limitation based on context as other than conviction uh, of an impeachment and a removal from office. But you don't just get to say, I don't like what happened. And I don't like what the president is doing with his authority. And so we're going to suspend that authority or the president should suspend his authority. Of course, that's silly. Of course, that's not the case. And uh, again, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the citation here from 2016, that when you have uh, a uh, contentious body that often disagrees for four or eight members is not stabilizing. You need the ninth. You need the full complement. And since we're likely to have a destabilizing event, regardless of the outcome on November 3rd or at some point after November 3rd when everything is tallied, you want the full nine. So that means a confirmation vote before the election. And coming up after the break, we're going to continue this conversation about uh, this vacancy and the forthcoming nomination from the president with Jenny Lichter, who's the deputy assistant to President Trump for domestic policy. So stay tuned for that. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. On the matter of the vacancy, good piece from Christopher Scalia talking about the relationship that his father had with Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He recalled words that his father offered Justice Ginsburg on the 10th anniversary of her time on the D.C. Circuit in which they both served. This was after Antonin Scalia had already been leveled up to the Supreme Court. She uh, hadn't been yet. 
So he ended uh, his talk with some sincere thoughts about their working time together. Christopher Scalia writes, I imagine that what dad said then is close to what he'd say today were he to mourn her passing. Quote, she was the best of colleagues as she is the best of friends. I miss her. So it was a real thing. And Scalia, Christopher Scalia made the point. The point of the story in their friendship isn't that his father and RBG changed their votes to please one another or that they pulled any punches in dissenting opinions. The point is they didn't let those differing and deeply held convictions undermine their dear friendship. This has already been one of the most difficult and divisive years in living memory, he writes, with Justice Ginsburg's passing. It will become more so. Reasonable people of good faith will disagree about important issues. You and your friends will likely hold very strong, very different opinions about what course our country should take and who should lead us there. A healthy republic requires citizens to debate those issues forcefully and peacefully. A healthy society needs citizens to remember that political disagreement need not turn friends into enemies. Hmm. For more on that topic, we're pleased to be joined by Jenny Lichter, who is a deputy assistant to President Trump for domestic policy. Also a Notre Dame graduate. ACB Connect there. I like that. Jenny Lichter, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Talking about the prospect of a um, Catholic nominee to fill Ruth Bader Ginsburg's Mm -hmm. seat on the Supreme Court, Amy Coney Barrett, of course. Um, Already it's begun some of the thinly veiled attacks on her for being a faithful Christian. This is a continuation of the attacks she endured when she was confirmed to the Seventh Circuit. And I wonder how the administration sees this as a a potential opportunity, actually, to um, let the Democrats present who they are and let Amy Coney Barrett, for example, hypothetically, present who she is or any other nominee present who she is on the matter of religious liberty and respect for people's religious liberty. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the president hasn't announced his choice, but I believe that at least one of the other folks who are being, you know, who are on the president's short list is also a Catholic. So you're certainly right that this issue was sort of in the air. And Amy Barrett became a meme, essentially, after her circuit court hearing, as, as you're pointing out, right, when Senator Feinstein said to her, you know, the dogma lives loudly within you in this kind of scolding and surprised way. So the confirmation is going to be messy, probably it always is, and and the other side will do what they do. But President Trump has made it clear he's going to nominate a woman, which I'm so excited about, to replace Justice Ginsburg. He's going to nominate someone who loves and respects the Constitution, including, of course, our first freedom, which is the freedom of religion. It seems, again, given the people who are on the president's list, that um, the nominee may well be a person of faith herself, as you said, kind of putting this issue front and center and living out what it means to be an American who has a constitutional right to to freely practice her faith. And religious liberty is also important because there's a big case on the docket for the high court this fall, Fulton v. Philadelphia, that John Yu and others have argued, and I agree, could finally restore religious freedom to the same status of other first freedoms enshrined in the First Amendment. Yeah, that's right. You know, the Supreme Court in the last few years has a great track record of granting cert, in other words, of accepting religious freedom cases that present a whole different host of versions of the question of what kinds of freedoms do people of faith and religious communities have. So this court I think has signaled an interest in those sorts of cases. I think probably has also signaled that they think the law, um, there's still some room to continue to develop the law of religious freedom. As you said, there's at least one case already teed up for this coming term on religious freedom. And uh, Attorney General Barr and his DOJ have a just incredible record of strong defense of the freedoms of religious believers and communities of faith. And 
uh, every opportunity the DOJ gets to defend religious freedom in the courts, including in the Supreme Court, they they take that opportunity. In in some cases, including possibly in Fulton, the case you're talking about, even when the United States isn't a party to the case, right, there are still opportunities for the De- Department of Justice to weigh in. And uh this DOJ under President Trump's leadership has done that over and over again, and it's going to continue to do it. And there are some other topic areas, too, on the domestic policy front that uh, the next court is going to revisit in some form or fashion at some point, uh, uh, some more likely than others. One is with respect to race-based admissions policies. There's a there's a, a challenge to Harvard University's use of race and its admissions policies that's winding its way potentially to the high court. And then the uh, uh, the other matter is um, with a conservative on the bench, you have the possibility, another conservative on the bench, you have the possibility of uh, finally once and for all freeing the little sisters of the poor to begin with. And then also, in addition to that, overturning Obamacare. Yeah. So every term at the Supreme Court is an important term, obviously, with big cases. This past year was no exception. But this coming term is certainly shaping up to be an interesting and important term with a lot of important cases with big questions, like you're saying. So that makes it all the more important to get a new, a new justice seated quickly as soon as, as as close a time as possible to the opening of the Supreme court's term in early October. And again, someone who respects the constitution, respects the rule of law and, and is, and is ready to just jump right in go toe to toe with, with the rest of the justices on the court and handle all those big cases that are coming down the pike this year. Uh, potentially another big case, and the president has spoken to this, he spoke to it before he uh, jetted off to Pennsylvania uh, yesterday, that if, if you have a close election and you have an election that's litigated and it goes to the Supreme Court the way that Bush v. Gore did, you, need, uh, you really need nine justices. You really need a full complement because 4-4 uh, uh, becomes, a, becomes a bit of a problem, doesn't it? Right. And any time the court is short staffed, and this has happened in the past with some of the unexpected vacancies or vacancies that have bled over into the Supreme Court's term, anytime there's less than a full complement, you run into a situation where sometimes the court ends up deadlocked. Sometimes that means they have to then hold a case over to the next term. But you can imagine some circumstances in which holding a case over until until the justice is seated or until later on would be suboptimal. So, so again, uh, in, in our view, it's just really important for a whole host of reasons to get a nominee through the process and onto the court so that he or she, she I think we can safely say she in this case, can start, uh, can start making a difference on that court quickly as possible. Uh, with respect to um, this uh, designation per President Trump of anarchist jurisdictions, uh, New York, Seattle and Portland earning the, that distinction, um, some others uh, are presenting strong cases that they should also be so designated, like uh, our home city here of Chicago. Um, the the idea that the president is going to use the authority that he has to enforce federal law, number one, uh, as in protecting federal buildings in, in cities and, sta- in, in states, and number two, incentivize the enforcement of the rule of law in jurisdictions that are a little bit lethargic about enforcing the rule of law. And one way to do it is through the federal purse strings. Right. That's right. Um, I, I believe the Department of Justice makes the specific designations. I, I, that's outside my lane. But right. but as a general matter, President Trump is absolutely, you're right, a, a law and order president. And, and he's exactly been the right president for this this moment in time, this this summer, this this fall, where a lot of cities have been suffering under localized violence. Um, President Trump has made it very clear that he won't stand for that. He, he thinks the American people deserve better, no matter where they live, um, where in the country they live, or who their leadership is. They deserve to live in a safe and secure community. 
and he is using every uh, every tool at his disposal as the head of the executive branch of the federal government to try and bring that safety and security to this country, and, and he's succeeding, I think. She is Jenny Lichter, Deputy Assistant to the President for Domestic Policy. Jenny, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, we've got a lot of COVID-related matters to cover, so let's get right to it. We're pleased to be joined again by Dr. Roger Klein, who's an expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group. He's the former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic and a former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, hi, Dan. The CDC... Is it a problem with Dr. Redfield not knowing how to use WordPress or upload content? Or what's the problem with the CDC such that they can make uh, a statement about the transmission of COVID that they immediately have to retract? I mean, things are not tense enough without the CDC making such glaring errors. Right. So I'm not sure how to explain it. I guess they said that a draft mistakenly got placed on a website, and sometimes that does happen. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to explain that in some of the other statements that have come out of CDC recently. Like, uh, for example, Dr. Redfield suggesting that wearing a mask is going to be more effective than a vaccine. Yeah, I was kind of thinking of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but since you were a consultant to CDC, give us a, a look into the culture there, because it seems to me what's happening is you have public health professionals, including at the highest reaches, Dr. Redfield, turning into politicians. It could be. I have to tell you, I mean, they, they actually have some very good, committed people there. I, I have a lot of friends there, and they're quite capable. And I, I, it's difficult to understand what's going on, and I don't know how to explain it myself. I'm really not sure. It's mostly career people working there, and, you know, they're good people, they're dedicated people, and they know their business. We have another issue with CDC, and that is the uh, turnaround time on reporting deaths, because we have so much public policy that is being made in real time by people watching the day-to-day data roll in. According to uh, the COVID tracking project, CDC all-cause mortality tables, this graph that I'm looking at, 56% of the reported deaths each day are from 3 to 20 weeks ago. This includes the low day reports on the weekends, so weekdays are even worse. Average lag from case to death report grew from 19 days back in April to June to 45 days now. So I don't think CDC as the repository of death reports is um, in the short run is, is probably what we want to be looking at. And, really? and I, I don't necessarily fall that. Well, they're looking at death certificates and death certificates are notoriously inaccurate. So I, I know they have a vetting process there and they, they're trying to do it right. And that's probably accounting for some of the delay. Some of this has to do with states sending death certificates to them. So they're going to lag. And I, I don't. Why is the lag time more than doubled from April to June at the height of the outbreak to now? Number one, number two, um, in terms of them, the vetting, what they promulgated 
at the outset is basically if it looks like COVID, it is COVID, reported as COVID. Yes, I think that that's part of the problem. I mean, as COVID initially, if some if an older person died and had coronavirus, it probably played a large role in the death in most instances. But then when you start to get a broader spread into the population, you have people dying from other things, it, it's more challenging. How can you reconcile somebody dying in an accident, for example, who has COVID with and call that a, a COVID death? Right? Yeah, you can. I mean, I think there's a lot of challenges. So uh, maybe if uh, you had been the comms person for CDC or for the task force from the beginning, that would have been more helpful because you know, that those sort of restrained statements like you just made are a lot better in terms of managing people's expectations and enhancing their understanding of what is known and what is unknown and, frankly, what should inform the decisions we have to make based on imperfect knowledge. That just hasn't been the case. There's just too many politicians, and it's really across the spectrum, including Trump and some members of his task force, that have spoken with moral certainty about things that they turn around and have backtracked on or watered down or completely contradicted. I agree with you in general. I think people have been uh, have been far too dogmatic about what they're saying in a situation that has been highly uncertain. And I and, and we, we've watched this all the way through. First, the death rate was, you know, was 10 times higher than it really is. It, it was one minute it, it affects young people and kills them. The other minute we, you know, later on, we find it really doesn't, you know. And I mean, sure, once in a while, but, but in general, uh, in general, uh, if you're under 40, the chance of dying from it is extremely low. Uh, you know, these are the facts that come out as the uh, epidemic evolves, we're, we've seen a great change in, in the disease itself. I mean, we get more cases, but the death tolls and the hospitalizations have gone down substantially. And so that you're right. I mean, this is the problem with uh, with being certain about uh, it, making pronouncements that that uh, that later turn turn out to be false. You, people lose confidence. When we come back with Dr. Roger Klein, I want him to tackle this uh, notion that part of the problem we have with the policymaking surrounding COVID is you just have so many experts who are unwilling to admit that they don't know something when they don't know something. More with Dr. Roger Klein right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're speaking with Dr. Roger Klein, discussing all things COVID 19. Before the break, we were discussing the reporting of deaths coming quite late as compared to earlier this spring at the height of the outbreak. Uh, from the CDC and how that may impact the public policy decisions being made by elected officials. There's a forthcoming study from Columbia University's Mailman School of Public Health and the New York City Department of Health that has not yet been peer-reviewed. It concludes that public health interventions meant to limit contact between people, such as closing schools and telling non-essential workers to stay home, quote, likely contributed to the largest reduction in transmission in the population overall, unquote. This is already being bandied about by political hacks to make the case for a renewal of lockdowns, likely contribute to the largest reduction in transmission. Yeah, right. You salt everybody away for an extended period of time and you will flatten the curve as we were going to do for two weeks back at the end of March to the beginning of April. 
And then if you decide that you ever want to resume something resembling civilization, then that necessarily involves more risk. Uh, This is not exactly groundbreaking science, even if this peer-reviewed study checks out, even if the study checks out when it is peer-reviewed, I should say. So I have a different point of view. So to me, models are calculations and they're based on what you put into them. So they're in a sense circular reasoning. You make assumptions and then you put in numbers and you get other numbers that come out and and they're not real studies. They shouldn't be called studies. They're just thought experiments. And it doesn't take a genius to go look at, at data that's publicly available all over the place. And you can see that the places that had the most stringent lockdowns don't have the best results. They actually have the worst results. Right. You know, I'm very skeptical of these pronouncements, again, that this is going to work. I think we need to use common sense here. And and some, a group of Stanford faculty members wrote a letter criticizing Scott Atlas. And what they said was, we believe the safest way to reach immunity is through a vaccine. Well, of course it is, and everybody knows that, and nobody's advocating people run out and get it. But on the other hand, life isn't black and white, and what we're, you know, I think people are recognizing is that just like every other disease that, that we face in this world, we have to go and live with it until, we get in, until we're done with it. And I want to say, you know, the Trump administration has done more than any administration that I could imagine uh, with Operation Warp Speed to bring a vaccine to the American people. But this is a race between a very contagious respiratory virus that kills a small number of people, a small percentage of people, but infects many and works its death through infecting lots of people, not through high individual risk. So so I think what we need to do is understand that we need to live with this. We need to go on. Uh, Most people who get infected aren't going to be harmed by it. Forty to 50 percent of the deaths have been nursing home residents. And and that, you know, when we get a vaccine, we can protect, you know, protect people and save lives by vaccinating those people most at risk from the disease. The Annals of Internal Medicine reported that the infection fatality rate in non-institutionalized persons under the age of 40 was one one hundredth of a percent. Even people over 60 compared with one point seven percent among among people over 60. That's a 200 fold difference between under 40 and over 60. But still, you're not talking about uh, high risk and low risk. You're talking about uh, almost no risk and and very low risk. That's the, in terms of uh, fatality. That's what you're talking about, even when you start to go up the, uh, the age demographics. And, and I, I, you know, I would suspect those are overstated because, uh, because we, you know, there's 10 times. I, I, I have to say I haven't seen that, uh, the, those numbers. I'm not to look at this. But, but this is, you know, we're, we have many more infections than we have cases. And so, you know, to the extent yes. that, yes. for example, we, we've probably got at least 70 million infections already in the United States. So if you would just look on an aggregate basis at the at the uh, case at the infection fatality rate, you'd call it, you know, point, you know, twenty nine out of uh, or you know point two nine percent, or you'd call it, uh, um, you know, two out of a thousand to three out of a thousand. Did, you did, know, on the population basis. Uh, so, so just since you mentioned that and. Um... The, the perception that, you know, about 20, it was among those suggesting we were nearing herd immunity, that about 20 percent seroprevalence uh, and you start to see uh, deaths sharply decline and cases, transmission start, sh- sharply decline that happened in Sweden, London, and New York. But now there's been a bit of a partial second wave. Deaths still down, uh, transmissions up a little bit. Uh, what does that tell you about uh, herd immunity or no herd immunity or what we're tracking for? 
Well, I don't think. First of all, uh, first of all, the the, serolo- the problem with the serology test is the antibody levels can drop, and so you could have had been infected, and and uh, and and so, so then you might get false negatives from the. Uh, so you can get false positives too, but I think there's a risk that antibody titers drop below the level of detection of the test. I think I think that the the immunity to this disease is could be more complicated or complex than we understand because we have coronaviruses that uh, circulate in the population regularly as uh, respiratory viruses, upper respiratory tract infections, colds. And and so to the extent that people have been exposed to those, they may have some residual immunity that cross-reacts. I, I think I think immunity isn't an all-or-nothing phenomenon. People look at antibodies. Well, it's not just antibodies. It, there's a whole immune response involving what are called T cells, what are called B cells, and you get these memory cells that that respond in in um, uh, to proteins that are foreign, and that's what a virus basically produces foreign proteins, and they can react to proteins that are similar looking. So could it be, for example, that people who have been exposed recently at least to, to uh, cold viruses like children, you know, where they're all, they always have a cold, maybe one of the reasons they tend to get less infected is because they, they have some cross immunity. What about, what about in Asia? Maybe in Asia they've been exposed to something uh, on, a, on a wider basis similar to what's going on now, and how's that impacting the, the population spread? I don't think we really understand it yet, but what we do see is once we start to reach a level of infection that, that appears to be lower, much lower than you would expect for uh, what people are calling you know, population immunity or herd immunity, that the infection rate really does seem to slow down. I, I, think, I think we're seeing that. And uh, you know, part of it is probably behavioral. People are staying out of crowds and certainly vulnerable people are, are protecting themselves. But I think, I think that there, there is uh, a possibility that we don't need to reach these, you know, these 70% levels that people are talking about because there, there are certain people who are, are simply not as likely to get infected. He is Dr. Roger Klein, expert with the Regulatory Transparency Project's FDA and Health Working Group, former director of molecular oncology at the Cleveland Clinic, former advisor to the FDA, CDC, CMS, and HHS. Dr. Klein, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. And next hour, top of next hour, we're going to talk uh, more in depth about uh, law and order, Chiching, and uh, the states of emergency over the pending announcement from Kentucky Attorney General Cameron as to whether or not charges will be filed against the officer or officers involved in the Brianna, Brianna Taylor killing, um, as well as uh, a uh, the decision that uh, Ron DeSantis has made, governor of Florida, to uh, build upon what President Trump has done at the federal level regarding declaring, uh, advising the Department of Justice to review and make determinations as to anarchist jurisdictions and then go from there in terms of defunding said jurisdictions. Uh, but um, you know, central to this uh, celebrity couple, I guess now, 
Mark and Patricia McCloskey of St. Louis. These are the two individuals, the trial lawyer and his wife, who defended themselves against trespassers in front of their palatial estate outside of St. Louis. Well, they're still getting uh, harassed in St. Louis, including uh, when they uh, came out of a uh, print shop carrying what appeared to be cards that featured them. And they are (laughs) Christmas cards, I guess. Uh, Somebody got their hands on the Christmas cards and posted them. One is both of them pointing guns, uh, Mark with the rifle, Patty with the handgun, Pat and Mark McCloskey v v the mob. June 28th of 2020. Another is a picture of them standing in front of their estate with the American flag draped over the front and the caption still standing with their arms crossed. This is pretty entertaining stuff, as was uh, this exchange between uh, the McCloskeys and one protester apparently tracking them. Abolish the suburbs! You are a terrorist! No mask! You think pointing guns at protesters is nice? It's fun? You think you're cool? Abolish the suburbs! Hmm. Abolish the suburbs! Abolish the suburbs! Would you like to abolish the suburbs? you and your guns! the Central West End! you! you! Don't come near me! Don't come near me! Abolish the suburbs! Thank you. Bye, Mark. Abolish the suburbs! Thoughtful. Compelling argument. Both of y'all. y'all. And uh, when she said, uh, don't come near them. Yeah, yeah, we got you. I got you. Heard you twice the first time. Um, They uh, gave her one of their, the McCloskeys gave her, or attempted to give her one of their Christmas cards (laughs) that maybe, maybe you'll get. Uh, you know what would be nice? Uh, that's a perfect card for this uh, new Fisher Price release. My first peaceful, peaceful protest playset with a house you can actually burn down. Now, that's a Babylon Bee story. But the uh, McCloskey story, that's not fake. That's real news. That actually happened. You heard the audio. And um, I don't know. The McCloskey seem to have a pretty good sense of humor, all things considered. They're certainly taking full advantage of it. So uh, those on their Christmas card list enjoy. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us again on this installment. Uh, follow us at danproftshow.com on social media at Dan Proft Show or at Dan Proft. And, um, want to revisit the issue of uh, law and order cha-ching because uh, Kamala Harris, she of the Harris-Biden presidential ticket, she was in Detroit uh, speaking with uh, black students, among others, and uh, the issue of policing came up. And uh, apparently, according to Kamala, a Harris-Biden administration is going to make reimagining policing not a state and local issue mainly a local issue, but a federal issue. Here's uh, what she had to say. When we talk about, the other brother was asking about criminal justice. Let's talk about America's failure when it comes to understanding how you create safe communities. 
And by that, I mean this. It is outdated. It is wrong-headed thinking to think that the only way you're going to get communities to be safe is to put more police officers on the street. What we have to do and what we will do is reimagine public safety in a way that you understand you want a safe community, you have to invest in the health and well-being of that community. What am I talking about? You can go to any upper middle class suburb in America and you will not see the kind of police presence you see in other neighborhoods. But what you will see are well-funded public schools. What you will see are high rates of home ownership. What you will see are families who have an income that allows them to get through the end of the month without worrying about whether they can feed their children. What you will see are small businesses that have access to capital. What you will see are families that have access to health care that they can afford and mental health care that they can afford. So if we want to build safe communities, we need to invest in the health of communities. Mm-hmm. This is a lot to unpack there, but this is the same old, same old Marshall Plan for urban centers. Uh, the problem with urban centers that are wholly owned subsidiaries of government at every level is it's not big enough. Right. They want to fund Poverty Inc. so as to uh, maintain their constituents in a posture of dependency and uh, their middle managers with reliable paychecks. That's the Democrat Socialist playbook. That's what it is. Scale it. Continue, well, at least continue to fund it, even if you're not going to scale it. Um, by the way, talking about those neighborhoods she uh, suggests she knows so well, I wonder how she would react to or answer the question, how is it, you know, you talk about police presence in a lower income, some lower income neighborhoods, and it's just some, by the way. Remember, of the many thousand census tracts in this country, fewer than 1,000 are properly described as having a significant violent crime problem. This uh, fallacy that most black Americans or most Latino Americans live in the ghetto. It's not true. It's not true. We have a, a small percentage of neighborhoods disproportionately in bigger cities, but not only bigger cities that have a problem with crime, largely connected to drugs and gangs. Understand that. But guess what? As we've talked about before, and the left won't address, and maybe Chris Wallace can press Biden of the Harris-Biden ticket on this on Tuesday night. 80%, according to Gallup, 80% of black Americans want the same level of police or more police in their neighborhoods. So this antipathy toward police is something that is also a distinct minority position and one that Kamala Harris is feeding. Of course she is. She's a demagogue. She's a race-hustling identitarian. Of course she is. That's what she does. But it doesn't make it accurate. And as it pertains to uh, you know, all of the funding of this and the funding of that all through the federal government, flowing to the states, flowing to the localities, the big cities, generally speaking. I mean, is there any interest in a discussion about the results that uh, that approach has produced? I mean, we're 30 trillion dollars into the great society over the last 60 years. I think that's enough of a probationary period, don't you? Kamala doesn't. Demagoguing police. More police doesn't equal more safety. Well, in lieu of police, what do you have? We talked about it yesterday. You have um, the local chapter of the NAACP, not a white supremacist organization, as I understand it, calling for volunteers, black men, law-abiding black men in Minneapolis who are law-abiding gun owners, 
to strap up their weapons and defend businesses in Minneapolis while the city council is befuddled by the fact that uh, so many constituent complaints are going unresponded to or unresponded to quickly as they have worked to defund the police rhetorically and substantively. Such a choice here. Such a choice here. Uh, Georgia leading candidate to uh, leading Democrat socialist Senate candidate in Georgia, Pastor Raphael Warnock, in a March 2015 sermon, he said, so in Ferguson, police power showing up in a kind of gangster and thug mentality. You know, you can all wear all kinds of colors and be a thug. You can sometimes wear the colors of the state and behave like a thug. You can, but was it the police in Ferguson that were behaving like thugs? I don't think that's the record. And this across the board to the hypocrisy and the, uh, the, the charlatanry of the position of the left. This uh, re- refusal to recognize what is when it comes to people preying on other people, for goodness sakes. <laughs> the best are the uh, little girls of privilege, like Alyssa Milano. Alyssa Milano, Hollywood actress. Yeah, <laughs> You know, we militarized the police. How many hungry children would uh, uh, would we could we feed if we weren't uh, providing these urban assault vehicles to police departments? And how many classroom supplies, child care programs? She sounds like Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris sounds like Alyssa Milano. The politics of identitarian protestation <laughs> story out of the uh, uh, out of MAGA media, actually. Uh, Milano called police claiming an armed gunman was on her property. It turned out to be a 14-year-old kid shooting squirrels with an air rifle. <laughs> this was uh, actually uh, the, um, yeah, pro-defending the police. Called police when she believed an armed gunman was on her Bell Canyon property in California Sunday morning. At least uh, seven Ventura County Sheriff's vehicles, one K-9 police helicopter, one L.A. Fire Department team sat down the street on standby. Um, residents received updates from law enforcement. Alyssa and her talent agent husband said they had dialed 911 when they heard what to believe what they believed to be gunshots, scared their dogs, so on and so forth. And ultimately, this is what it was. But who did she call when she was afraid? Yeah, we could go the way of Seattle. The city of Seattle, whose mayor, incredibly, is a former U.S. attorney, Jenny Durkin. is paying a convicted pimp one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year to come up with alternatives to policing. Is that uh, consistent with Kamala? That about the speed? Gorgeous Dre, as he calls himself, uh, and Kamala agree about reimagining policing. Maybe he can have a job in the Harris Biden administration. His payment of 150 grand annually is for his quote particular genius in a particular area," said Gorgeous Dre. Not too many people can go talk to gangbangers in their territory and then go talk to their government in their territory. In case you think that this is a story of redemption and Gorgeous Ray has reformed his ways, Gorgeous Ray, during the absurd episode of the Chaz slash Chop Autonomous Zone in the center of Seattle, vowed to go to war with the city, uh, suggested that uh, those occupying the Autonomous Zone demand $2 million to leave the site saying that, uh, quote, according to the Seattle Times, don't just leave, leave with something. The Seattle Times also reported that uh, Gorgeous Dre 
was then given the six-figure contract on the day he appeared at a press conference with Mayor Durkin telling the occupiers to shut down the autonomous zone. Right. Telling the occupiers to shut down the autonomous zone. Great shakedown racket. Jesse Jackson Sr. would be proud. You know, I'm a principal. This is for the fight. This is about black lives. This is about police reform. Right up until my beak gets wetted. And then, hey, I'm happy to stand with whoever. We'll uh, continue our conversation about law and order, Ching, because I want to uh, uh, present to you what Governor Ron DeSantis, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, had to say on Tucker Carlson's show, how he is taking what uh, President Trump did in terms of promulgating guidelines for the Department of Justice to use in assessing whether particular jurisdictions are anarchist jurisdictions, as we discussed a bit yesterday with uh, Dan Henninger from the Wall Street Journal, and uh, look at uh, the federal funding they received for possibly some rescinding of said federal funding. Governor DeSantis in Florida is providing a model that other Republicans should follow. More right after. Would you rescue me? Would you give my back? Would you take my car when I start to crack? Would you rescue me? Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show, talking law and order to Ching. And as I was going through, we can go one direction, the Kamala Harris direction of uh, bigger government and urban centers. This is all this urban renewal claptrap, as if this is a novel idea. Uh, and uh, public sector indulgences, you know, paying convicted pimps 150 grand to help cities reimagine their policing as uh, Mayor Durkin is doing in Seattle. Or you can do what uh, Governor Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. That is impactful at the local level as well. Florida's a big, diverse, populous state, don't you know? Uh, here's what DeSantis is doing to uh, stand up to the mobocracy there. And send the message that we're not just going to do what uh, you see having been done over the last couple of days in Midwestern cities, at least, which is uh, preparing for a state of emergency awaiting the Kentucky Attorney General Cameron's decision on the Breonna Taylor case and whether or not there'll be a prosecution of the officer or officers involved in her killing. As if um, that response is acceptable, any response of violence is acceptable, regardless of the decision of the Attorney General. Uh, but no moral clarity. Moral clarity from Ron DeSantis. You mentioned increased penalties for people who are involved in these violent demonstrations, and that includes things like toppling statutes, blocking roadways. We also have a provision that says any municipality that defunds the police, which is just an insane policy, it's like cutting off your nose to spite your face. If you do that, the state government's going to defund you. We're not going to be sending you money if you're doing things like that. We also are concerned about watching Minnesota, what happened in Minneapolis, where the mayor just abdicated responsibility, had the police stand back. That gave these folks the ability to run amok. If that happens in Florida... We're waiving sovereign immunity. You can sue the local government for damages for anything that happens uh, to you. And then, as you mentioned, with just letting people out, uh, we revoke bail if you're arrested for one of these offenses. Um, And then once you make your first appearance, the presumption is you don't get bail beyond that. Because what happens in Oregon, they go in, they get their mugshot taken, and then they're right back on the street doing the same thing. Well, how, how is that a deterrent? 
Yeah, how how is it indeed? And how about uh, businesses in Chicago or Kenosha, Seattle, Portland, Minneapolis, Lancaster, New York, L.A.? How would you like to be able to pierce the sovereign immunity of local officials and have them have to compensate you for their failure to even make an effort to protect your person and your property when the mob came? Exactly right. And Ron DeSantis um, presents pretty clear choice for people to consider. And uh, also, very smartly, forces those standing for election this November to express their position as well. On which side of the skirmish line do you stand? Every state legislator, every federal officer, office holder. On which side are you? Some of the people on the far left, they are just anti-police. I mean, they do believe in defunding the police. And so when you have me standing in front of all these sheriffs and police chiefs saying, no, 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 you're not going to defund the police. We'll defund you. Uh, you're going to jail if you harm a police officer, really any citizen. Um, but uh, And so they're basically caught in this position. But I think it's important. We want this done as soon as we can get it done. But we're in an election season. Everyone running for office in Florida, in the House or Senate, they got to take a position on this now. Yeah. Are you for law enforcement, rule of law, or are you going to stand with the mob? I know where I stand. And where do you stand? This is what they want. What do you want? You know where Kamala Harris stands on the, of the Harris-Biden ticket. You know where Ron DeSantis stands. Every Republican officeholder in the country should be following DeSantis's example. To not do so is to be asleep at the switch. And, uh, of course, uh, the focus right now, particularly in advance of President Trump announcing the nominee to replace RBG, is on that process. But uh, before or between now and November 3rd, as this violence and unrest and uh, calls and, and actions in furtherance of defunding the police or otherwise denigrating them, as those things continue, and they will continue because there are many Neville Chamberlains in many positions of authority in many places in this country. That choice that DeSantis just presented will be one that voters are considering. That's exactly where Republicans, conservatives, as well as the president should be. The president's there. Ron DeSantis in Florida is there. Not enough other Republicans around the country are there. Uh, because if you do allow for the mob to take over, you have a situation like what happened in Kenosha. People are defending themselves and you have shootouts on the streets. And uh, to that end, uh, Kyle Rittenhouse's case, a new video has been posted to the question of whether Kyle Rittenhouse has acted in self-defense in the killing of two of the uh, Jacobins uh, that were rioting in the streets of Kenosha. This is uh, admittedly from a nonprofit organization affiliated with his defense team, the Sarah Don Tucker Carlson show last night. But it's relevant, and it's. Uh, I watched it. It's. I won't play the entire thing, but the uh, narration is helpful. You should go watch the video yourself. The narration tells you the story, and it's not inconsistent, frankly, with the the uh, video and the reporting that the New York Times stitched together uh, several weeks back, just days into, just days after this uh, occurred. And so it starts with this uh, convicted sex offender P.O.S. that uh, really, seemingly instigated so much of the violence that led to his death, the death of another, and the injury of another. Tensions began to rise as protesters set a dumpster ablaze, then began pushing it toward a gas station. A guard quickly extinguished the flames, angering fire starter Joseph Rosenbaum. That's him. Rosenbaum retaliated 
focusing his rage on a guard in a green t-shirt. Moments later, just down the street, Joseph Rosenbaum is seen starting more fires. Around that same time, Kyle Rittenhouse is spotted running with a fire extinguisher. With his face concealed, Rosenbaum emerges, chasing after Rittenhouse. Ooh, we got a gun, baby. While exploring possible motives for the foot pursuit, it's worth noting that the target of Rosenbaum's first altercation was dressed similarly to Kyle Rittenhouse. Now, jeans, green shirt, green t-shirt. Ooh, we got a, gun, baby. a single gunshot is fired by a protester, identified as Alexander Blaine. From this angle, we see the muzzle flash of Blaine's handgun. Seconds later, Kyle Rittenhouse is pinned between parked cars. Let's rewind to analyze this pivotal moment frame by frame. Here we see Rittenhouse, Rosenbaum, and a reporter by the name of Richard McGinnis, who is filming the chase on his cell phone. Directly in front of Rittenhouse, armed with bats and other weapons, a mob is forming a barricade. With no way out and no way to know who fired that shot, Rittenhouse turns to face Rosenbaum. Right before he turned around, I'm not sure if this was a reason why he turned around, but there was a gunshot, and that's actually visible on video. It's not clear whether or not that gunshot was fired into the air or towards Rittenhouse, but Rittenhouse did turn around immediately after that. That I was eyewitness testimony from the individual who was filming what was happening on the phone is... Uh particularly helpful to Rittenhouse, particularly damaging to the prosecution. We'll see how this case proceeds. But um, and again, this video presented by uh, his defense team. But uh, the video is the video. The statement from the eyewitness is the statement from the eyewitness. So, again, we'll see how this proceeds. But you do you want a situation like what happened on the streets of Kenosha in the first place? Of course you don't. But you can't support the Kamala Harris, the Harris Biden position and also say, no, I don't want to see what happened in Kenosha happen because their position guarantees it will happen. This is Dan Proff. Listen to podcast of the show at danproffshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Joe Biden, he's not going to answer questions he doesn't want to answer. Well, we'll see how well that serves him on Tuesday in the first debate between President Trump and Vice President Biden. Yesterday, Joe Biden was uh, being interviewed by a local reporter up in Wisconsin, WBAY2, asked the court packing question. Why is he asked the court packing question? Because uh, so many of the temper tantrum set within his party have been saying if the Republicans move forward with filling the Ruth Bader Ginsburg vacancy, that we're going to pack the court if Joe Biden is elected. Case in point, Don Lamone of the Fredo and Lamone buddy cop tandem at CNN. We're going to have to blow up the entire system. You're going to have to get rid of the Electoral College because the, the minority in this country decides who the judges are and they decide who the president is. is well, that, you need a is constitutional amendment to do that. And if Democrats, if Joe Biden wins, Democrats can stack the courts and they can do that amendment and they can get it passed. And others uh, more hefty than Don Lamone have suggested the same. Joe Biden to that question. Let me tell you why I'm not going to answer that question. 
because it will shift all the focus. That's what he wants. He never wants to talk about the issue at hand. He always tries to change the subject. But let's say I answer that question. Then the whole debate's going to be, well, Biden said or didn't say. Biden said he would or wouldn't. That's going to, the, this, the discussion should be about why he is moving in a direction that's totally inconsistent with what the founders wanted. They're designed, the Constitution says designed, the voters get to pick the president who gets to make the pick and the Senate who gets to decide. We're in the middle of an election right now, Brittany. You know, people are voting now. By the time this Supreme Court here would be held, if they hold one, would in fact, we probably, there's estimated 30 to 40% of the American people already have voted. It is a fundamental breach of constitutional principle. That is just uh, utter silliness, unsurprisingly. But just so we can establish a baseline here, Supreme Court vacancies have occurred in election year in which a president has moved to fill the vacancy 25 times, two dozen times. I mean, this is not unprecedented in any way, shape or form. Obviously, we just had one happen in an election year four years ago in 2016 with the passing of Antonin Scalia and the effort by President Obama to fill that vacancy blocked by the Senate divided government. That's the difference. Divided government versus Senate and a executive branch controlled by the same party. It's constitutional principles. What is he talking about? And uh, we'll, we'll get to a, this day in Joe Biden history, which actually was yesterday. But in terms of remember his uh, very stylistic recollection of his academic record, including at law school. But the other piece of it is the idea that he's going to be able to avoid answering questions that are being prompted by those within his party. Well, not if Chris Wallace is doing his job on Tuesday night. He won't be able to avoid them. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by David Rifkin, who served at the Justice Department and uh, the White House Counsel's Office. He is a uh, adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, and he uh, has a practice that uh, operates at the appellate level in both constitutional law in Washington, D.C. David Rifkin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, with respect to uh, Joe Biden, I, I, and, and I, that I think you've reiterated essentially that point in, in the piece, but just the whole idea that this is somehow so out of bounds to even consider uh, moving a replacement to Ruth Bader Ginsburg upon her untimely passing. Agree, absolutely. You mentioned numerous instances where vacancies were filled both nomination-wise and confirmation-wise during the election year. In the opening paragraph of, of my Wall Street Journal piece uh, from Monday, we mentioned uh, at that point in time, Judge Breyer, who became subsequently Justice Breyer, he was nominated and confirmed, uh, nominated by President Carter after he lost the elections. My other favorite example, which I don't mention in the piece in terms of a proximity to the elections, President Eisenhower put Brennan, subsequently Justice Brennan, in the court. You know, what, how close it was to the elections? October 15. And it was done, um, there's no doubt about it, for <laughs> largely political purposes because Eisenhower's advisors believed that it would help to firm up the Catholic vote in the Northeast. So you know, get me out of here. This is, this is ridiculous. We're approaching tremendously contentious elections where litigation is going to unfold, already unfolding, that would make Bush versus Gore look like a walk in the, in the sunshine with all the efforts to stretch out the vote ballot counting. So the last thing we think we need, I think, as a country, is to have a Supreme Court that's not up to full strength, because you're going to have litigation over you know, elective slate certifications in multiple circuits. They may come out of different answers on the same legal issues. If we have an A-Justice Supreme Court and we have a 4-4 decision, it will be tremendously destructive. Now, I'm not saying that A-Justices would not get you to 5-3, but they might not. Nine justices cannot get you to a tie. 
So that's what makes a vote on President Trump's nominee not only constitutionally proper, but constitutionally essential. When we come back with constitutional lawyer David Rifkin, I want to uh, have him address this issue that uh, nominating a Supreme Court candidate when a vacancy has occurred and the Senate taking it up is somehow in an election year, somehow uh, a violation of Supreme Court norms. Uh, We'll have uh, David Rifkin address that. The Dan Proft Show. We're back with constitutional lawyer David Rifkin talking about uh, the SCOTUS vacancy and the prospect of uh, ACB for RBG. Before the break, you were making the case in favor of making a nomination and uh, pursuing a confirmation. And uh, in fact, one former justice uh, who just passed away, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, agreed with you when she said, uh, yeah, in in a contentious body where there are often disagreements, uh, 4-4 is an unstable situation. Absolutely. Always unstable. There have been over 100 lawsuits, nothing less than a full litigation Armageddon brought without exception by Democrats in over a dozen states trying to fundamentally change the law that applies to mail-in ballots. And the idea is to have a plan B, if we do not do well on November 3rd, is to stretch out the ballot counting and litigation over signatures to a point that would actually disable the Electoral College, or at least would allow them to argue with the Electoral College vote that has to happen on December 14. And they like the slates to be in a safe harbor situation, have to be done by December 8th, that's all based on federal law, to basically push it beyond that date and potentially throw things in the House that would be seized of this issue on January 6th. I don't think I'm exaggerating if I told you that that is piling disaster on top of disasters we've been experiencing now of pandemic and, and, and unrest. It, I mean, it, it scares the bejesus out of me, and it's not a legal term, but it really does. <laughs> uh, so if you were providing advice and counsel to the president, would you say he makes a nomination announcement on Saturday? Let's move forward. Have confirmation hearings. Don't have confirmations. Have McConnell just call the vote and vote his and the Republican Party voted shares. Or would you go through a formal hearing process? And and what would that look like if you would argue for green lighting it? Yeah, I'm a constitutional lawyer. I'm not an expert in uh, legislative matters, truth be told. I will defer to Senator McConnell. I think the Senate Republican uh, majority leader would know how to get it done. But since you asked me, <laughs> and I cannot resist myself being a litigator and answering <laughs> questions, I would try to get it done before the election year. Now, look, the Constitution does not require any hearings, does not require a committee vote. There are, I'm sure, Senate procedures in place. But I think that what the Republicans should try to do in the Senate is, is cut a deal with Democrats to ensure that there were no dilatory tactics and that everything is set up, they're not going to ask for delays because the minority in the Senate, unlike in the House, can get substantial delays unless that agreement is secured. I at least would suggest proceeding because, look, the Republicans are going to be criticized no matter how they slice it, even if active about most decorum. So I think the goal is, is, is to get it done. And by the way, the business about packing the court, again, as a constitutional lawyer, I can tell you, Constitution provides for chief justice. Constitution does not set the numbers for justices and social justices in the Supreme Court. But given the 100 plus year precedent, the Democrats actually, if the smarter Democrats think about it, they would have packed the court. If we could get it done, which required them controlling the White House, controlling the Senate, abolishing filibuster, 
that would, you know, I remember a term from the Vietnam War era, we had to destroy the village to save it. That would tremendously delegitimize the one institution that still enjoys considerable public approval because it would be impossible to reconcile the notion that the court is, is neutral and not a partisan political institution. So I think, A, the threats to PAC were made before this battle uh, has been joined over uh, uh, Ginsburg's successor. B, I do not think it's by any way a slam dunk, even if Democrats control all seniors of power in Washington. It would be tremendously delegitimizing, and Supreme Court needs legitimacy for its orders to be made uh, fully. And the the histrionics around the so-called Biden rule, since we're talking about uh, Joe Biden, uh, the Biden rule that uh, often invoked until it really is no longer controlling, if you will, because of what they chose to do in 2016, Joe Biden included. Well, it's not even that. The fundamental argument I make is, is very simple. Look, the institutions of our government are supposed to be fully effective until the last day in office. That's true of the House, that's true of the Senate, that's true of the President. That is what democracy actually means. They don't expire 30, 50, 60, 100 days in advance. Point number one. Point number two, the reason you had past instances where sometimes, like uh, Mary Garland nomination, is not, I don't even like to put it in terms of same party controlling both the Senate and the White House. Let me put it in a slightly more exalted way. If there's a fundamental disagreement about the judicial philosophy uh, of suitable Supreme Court candidates between the President and the Senate, you do not proceed because you can. That the framers divided the power uh, to make appointments in the court between the Senate and the President. In a situation where there's full con- full unity on this issue. There's absolutely no reason to wait. So it is, it is, it is the question of, of, of even if you take off the table of the, the coming litigation problems and, and, and legitimacy issues in elections, there's, just, there's absolutely no reason to say, what, there's some magic date that if it's by May uh, of the election year, you can proceed, but if it's in September, you cannot. They're just, they're just silly, and, and history does not support it. Well, and you're also talking to a party that's uh, headed in the Senate by Chuck Schumer, who called, who said uh, yesterday that the Republicans have now stolen two Supreme Court seats. <laughs> stolen. I, I don't know how you steal it. It was, seemed to occur in the full light of day with the vacancies, nominees, and then a confirmation process, but not according to Chuck Schumer. No, look, the bottom line, as you, as, as you well know, in the mind, unfortunately, regrettably, of, of some people, Biden, excuse me, Trump is not a legitimate president. He was not legitimately elected in 2016. Hillary should have been elected. Therefore, ipso facto, whatever Trump does is illegitimate. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, Kavanaugh was not legitimate. Gorsuch was not legitimate. And whoever is going to replace uh, uh, late Justice Ginsburg is illegitimate. So it's it's not a question of, of a timing. It's a question of a fundamental denial, which, by the way, is terrible. In a democracy, the, the, the sine qua non of, of democracy is the willingness by the losing side in any particular election to accept the legitimacy of a democratic outcome. And by the way, one, one final thing about Don Lemon, again, uh, the notion that you're going to get a constitutional amendment through that would abolish electoral college is, is risable no matter who wins in November. And the notion that is the Electoral College is somehow disfranchising is absurd. If we had an hour, we can talk about why the framers did it for good and sufficient reasons, why it remains necessary to sort of overall uh, constitutional architecture that we have because we are a federal republic. We're not an Athenian-style democracy where everybody piles into the city square and, you know, votes. 
there is sig- significant constitutional reality to states, which is why we have blue states and red states. So th- this whole thing is silly uh, at the best and, and very destructive uh, uh, at, at worst. Because well, it, it, well, yeah. well may, maybe Don Lemon will have you on the show to talk about it, but you're going to have to talk very slowly. Just just uh, you're forewarned. David Rifkin served at the Justice Department and White House Counsel's Office, both the Reagan and Bush administrations. Uh, that's H.W. Bush. David Rifkin, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Pleasure. Bye-bye. I'm The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show. Uh, President Trump had some fun ribbing Joe Biden at his uh, rally of Trump supporters in Moon Township, Pennsylvania last evening. You ever see Sleepy Joe with the little circles? He puts them very far away. So far away, and then he comes up with a mask. He's like a hundred yards from the nearest human being. He's got a mask. He feels good about the mask. I wonder, in the debate, it'll be him and I or the stage. Is he going to walk in with a mask? I'll be honest. He feels good about. He feels good about the mask, and that's okay. You know what? Whatever makes you feel good, he feels good. He feels. I mean, honestly, what the hell did he spend all that money on the plastic surgery if he's going to cover it up with a mask? It's a great question. You know, I had forgotten about the work that he had done, and I, I don't know about uh, Botox or whatever he had done in the area that's covered by the mask. But I had forgotten about that alfalfa field that he had planted in his head several years back. It's worth noting, I, I don't know much about hair plugs, but his head seems rather fallow now where that alfalfa field was planted. And I, I guess over time, even the hair plugs fall out if you live long enough, get on long enough. It calls to mind uh, this day in Joe Biden history because uh, President Trump certainly provided a interesting uh, symmetrical review of Joe Biden history versus his political history. I did more in 47 months than he did in 47 years. Trump seemed to like that. 30 years ago yesterday, I'm sorry I missed it on yesterday's show to memorialize it, but uh, we'll make up for it right here. 30 years ago yesterday, Joe Biden was ending his presidential campaign for the nomination in 88 after a little bout he had with um, borrowing, as the Associated Press calls it, borrowing, borrowing the words of Neil Kinnock, U.K. labor labor leader for and making them his own. Gosh, I wonder if the AP caught a reporter plagiarizing, if they would call that borrowing. Interesting. Also, uh, under remembered. In addition to the plagiarizing of Neil Kinnock, the lying about his academic record, Joe Biden said he was the outstanding political science student in his class at the University of Delaware. And then he graduated from college with three degrees that he went to Syracuse University Law School on a full academic scholarship and that he graduated in the top half of his law class. In Monday's statement, Biden conceded that none of that is really true. According to academic records he gave to reporters at the time, he was 76th in his law school class of 85. That's not the top half for you law school grads, uh, you know, who are not required to do math. At the University of Delaware, top political science student, right? Top political science, outstanding political science student, graduated with three degrees. In point of fact, he had a C average. He graduated 506th in a class of 688 at University of Delaware. Just misremembering, I'm sure. As far as being the outstanding student, he was just nominated. 
you know, it's just sort of like his being president. He's only been nominated, and that's as far as it's going to go. He received a, a scholarship to go to law school, but didn't clarify whether it was a full or half scholarship. And his record suggests it was the latter, according to reporting at the time. Yeah, a lot of misremembering from Joe Biden. A lot of misremembering from Joe Biden. I'm glad we're not forgetting to remind people about Joe Biden's on-again, off-again relationship with the truth over those 47 years that President Trump mentioned. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Kamala Harris, Reparation H, she of the Harris-Biden ticket in Detroit, didn't only speak about uh, reimagining policing, and only talk about how more police is not equal to more safety. She also spoke about uh, President Trump's 1776 commission advance uh, last week and how President Trump is the one attempting to, well, she didn't say rewrite history, but not teach history, attempting to whitewash history. That's Kamala Harris's point. We need this instruction, this anti-racist instruction in the federal government. So for President Trump to offer this patriotic education uh, advance last week to uh, ban uh, uh, the uh, race-based workshops for federal employees. This is tantamount to rewriting history by eliminating, according to Kamala. On behalf of the Wayne State Black Student Union, we want to know that given that America is built on racism, sexism, and other evils, how will you as vice president advocate whether through policy or just through the powers that you know that you can advocate on how will we resolve these injustices for the black community and specifically for black women yes thank you and and thank you for your role of leadership um part of it is i'm gonna need your help because um one of the biggest problems on the topic that you have raised is the failure to speak truth about america's history with race you know, right now, Donald Trump is trying to actually, you probably know this, Lieutenant Governor, tried to get rid of the training in the federal government yeah. Yeah. on race, yeah. on specific aspects of race. Literally trying to wipe out history. They're saying there are, there are senators and others who are saying that basically, essentially, we should stop teaching the truth about racism in America. We should stop teaching adults who work in the federal government about American history. I thought that's what K through 12 education was for. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Phil Magna, senior research fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, author of the 1619 Project, A Critique. Phil Magnus, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, we find out that it's actually the 1619 Project, of which uh, Kamala Harris is a fan, as you might surmise, that is rewriting the history they've already been rewriting. But before we even get to that, I mean, the idea that you need an education in American history as an adult working in the employee of the federal government, shouldn't that premise be first examined? 
Well, absolutely. And I think what we're seeing here is the slippery of the, the slipperiness of the language that these people employ. They'll retreat to a uh, very generic platitude about the need to teach history and the history of slavery included, which I think most Americans would agree with that this is part of our history we should examine. But what they're really going for is a very tendentious left-wing version of history that is wrapped up in progressive politics in the 21st century and is connected to this branch of academia that's known as critical theory or critical race theory in some of the iterations. And what it really does is it tries to weaponize the history and the concept of racism in such ways that can be used to advance uh, a lot of their political agenda in the present day. Right, and, and it turns out that the 1619 Project can't keep its own history straight, as you write over at uh, Colette.com in your piece. Exactly. So this is a fascinating thing because we, we want to tell uh, the true history of the United States and, and look at work such as the 1619 Project. And yet we discovered over the weekend is that sometime in the last year, we think it was around de- uh, December 2019, January 2020, the New York Times quietly edited this line off of its website, just made it disappear down the memory hole. So not only is the 1619 Project teaching bad history, it can't even keep its own history straight. And so you have uh, the cover of uh, Kamala Harris projecting what uh, the left is doing onto Donald Trump, suggesting that Donald Trump's uh, commitment to American education as it uh, uh, to commitment to the teaching of American history in K through 12 education, um, how it actually occurred, that's somehow whitewashing history. Right. So it's a a complete inversion. It's almost Orwellian the way that they've taken this uh, approach to American history uh, and it engages in in, in exactly what you say, direct projection of what they happen to be doing onto everybody else. I mean, I've I've kind of jokingly suggested the 1619 Project might be renamed the 1984 Project, Mm -hmm. the way that they're uh, they're conducting themselves. And and, uh, that that 1776 Project, if you will, um, that President Trump unfurled last week. I mean, this, you know, the scholars here on both sides, the scholars, including on the left, historians in academia have not treated the 1619 Project very well in terms of uh, its accounting of history, important events in history like the Civil War. Uh, Meanwhile, you have noted academics that are part of the 1776 Commission, Wilford McClay, who wrote uh, Land of Hope. He's been on the program uh, as well as uh, Civil War historian Alan Guelzo, Peter Wood, director of National Associated Scholars, Larry Arne, who's a Churchill scholar and the president of Hillsdale College. So, you know, those academics can be subjected to the same scrutiny per whatever they promulgate as part of this commission. Absolutely. And, you know, I would uh, favor that kind of a debate. That's something we need to be having. But as you noted, the 1619 Project, when it was published, it was critiqued by historians and other scholars from across the political spectrum. I've had everything from conservatives, such as Alan Gilzo. I'm more on the libertarianish free market end. Uh, there was uh, even the World Socialist website was one of the early uh, leaders of publishing criticism of, uh, of this project, and it came from reading historians that uh, we all kind of recognized the same thing, though. It was stating historical mistruths. It was misusing the evidence. It was uh, presenting falsehoods as if they were uncontested facts. And that's a real problem for historical scholarship because it actually squeezes out the discussion that we need to be having. It prevents the debate by asserting that there's one true history and that history is curated by the New York Times. Well, uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones has a Pulitzer Prize. Do you have a Pulitzer Prize? And, uh, and, and, and you know, and, and Robin D'Angelo is a bestseller. Are you a bestseller? I mean, shouldn't we uh, base our understanding or give some consideration to people who are being so feted by 
by by the awards they're receiving and the stature they're being provided? Well, there's a fascinating thing about Nicole Hannah Jones's Pulitzer Prize is it was awarded after several major public controversies had emerged around her article in particular in the 1619 Project. So she had a claim in the original article that asserted basically that the American Revolution was precipitated by and fought over a desire to defend slavery in the colonies. And this is a, a, a fringe historical theory. It has uh, very little evidence behind it. It, it takes uh, bits and pieces of the past and, and almost willfully misreads them. And in fact, the Times' own fact checker, they had uh, hired a, a historian from Northwestern University to uh, review this specific claim. And she revealed shortly before the Pulitzer came out that she had warned the New York Times against publishing this specific claim. And it actually caused them to, to walk it back. But, uh, but we've, we've entered into a stage where uh, top awards and prizes, both in journalism and academia, are no longer uh, handed out strictly on merit. Oftentimes they're used to bolster the falling credibility of a, um, a political project that has attracted a lot of criticism and controversy. So it's a way of, uh, of kind of doing damage control and repair after this project has taken hit in the public arena. You have reputation management, not just for Nicole Hannah-Jones in, uh, individually, but for the New York Times because of their public backing of this, uh, this storytelling that's going on. Yeah, it, it was their premier project for the last year. This was the thing that they put in their Super Bowl ad. And even the Super Bowl ad, I've gone back and rewatched it, 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 it kept this claim that they now uh, conveniently edited out of their website about uh, 1619 being the true founding uh, and uh, America was not yet America and yet this was our origin point versus 1776. So this was a, uh, a claim they had really staked uh, a lot of the paper's credibility behind. And yet here we have, uh, you know, uh, uh, just six, seven months later after they were publicly trumpeting it, uh, they're sending it down the memory hole. They've uh, erased it off of their website. Nicole Hannah-Jones deleted most of her Twitter feed because people were going through and finding previous instances where she contradicted herself and made this claim publicly. Uh, so, so you've got the, the paper of record is no longer uh, exercising its role as a journalist. It's, it's actually revising its own record. It's revising its own history because they've, uh, they've probably figured out that uh, this particular element of the line doesn't hold very well. It comes across as, as kind of this left-wing radical uh, attempt to uh, revise, purge, and denigrate American history in ways that uh, I think most Americans, uh, whether they're on the political left or political right or anywhere in between, uh, kind of find distasteful. He is Philip Magnus, Senior Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research, author of The 1619 Project, A Critique. Philip, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. Coming up, we're going to talk to University of Texas Professor James K. Galbraith, the son of John Kenneth Galbraith, a great Buckley friend, we'll discuss. Uh, this is a, definitely a switch of gears in terms of discussing what ails America and what the remedies are. So it will be very Buckley-esque in terms of me playing the role of William F. Buckley, however however modestly, and uh, James K. Galbraith channeling his father, John Kenneth Galbraith. That's coming up. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. I mentioned uh, this earlier in the program when we were talking to um, 
Ms. Lichter, Jenny Lichter, uh, domestic policy advisor, President Trump, this uh, article about Christopher Scalia, which I also referenced on our show yesterday, about the uh, relationship that uh, his father had with Ruth Bader Ginsburg and recounting how uh, he had uh, offered such a, a nice tribute to her on the occasion of her 10th anniversary on the D.C. Circuit, on which uh, court they both served. And then Scalia had just made his way to the Supreme Court before Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. And, um, you know, the the idea of the age old idea of being able to disagree without resorting to violence. It's a simple concept that seems uh, more elusive these days. Uh, and uh, our next guest uh, comes from such lineage as well. His father, John Kenneth Galbraith, a uh, great uh, professor, great intellect, and Bill Buckley uh, disagreed on many things, uh, firing line discussions that were always robust and interesting, but um, they uh, uh, did so in a way that was instructive from different, giving different perspectives and substantive. And again, uh, as I, re- I remember having this conversation with Rich Lowry, this is pre-pandemic, Rich Lowry, now the editor-in-chief at National Review, the of course, an dis- intellectual descendant of Bill Buckley, and asked him if he thought Buckley's firing line program could be made today. And he said, uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I- I'm kind of with him, and it's more so the case in 2020 than it was in 2019 when uh, I had that conversation with Rich Lowry. For more on uh, the roots of America's misery, such as it is, we're pleased to be joined by James Galbraith, Professor himself, professor of government and chair in government business relations at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, former executive director of the Joint Economic Committee and author of Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know, as well as Welcome to the Poison Chalice, The Destruction of Greece and the Future of Europe. Professor Galber, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure. Is, is that a fair representation of your uh, father's relationship with Bill Buckley and, and you know, sort of in the Ginsburg Scalia tradition? Oh, I think so, yes. Um, Bill and, and, and Dad enjoyed each other's company enormously. They teased each other mercilessly yeah, and, uh, yeah. uh, uh, and, and got along very well. I'm sitting here in my father's study under a picture of them sitting in director's chairs at some pub political convention in the 1970s. That, that's so cool. And, and I just wonder, before we get into the, 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 the gist of, uh, of our conversation— I mean, the, my, the conversation I relayed with Rich Lowry, I mean, where are you in coming down in sort of any kind of uh, of uh, show that features substantive disagreement or, or uh, informed debate uh, like uh, Firing Line was? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch the, the question. I, I, I just I wonder where you are in terms of what you think the possibilities uh, today would be of uh, something akin to Bill Buckley's firing line program where you have informed discussion and thoughtful debate. Well, you're just someone with a sense of humor, and that has disappeared, I think, actually on both the right and the left to mm-hmm. a very large extent. Uh, the last figures that really maintained it in the in the progressive tradition where, for example, Molly Ivins, a great Texas journalist, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, you come up with an example of someone who can actually maintain that kind of balance today, I don't know. Yeah, okay. That, uh, that's a fair point. I think that's uh, that quality is uh, something uh, that, that you hit upon, I think, is on the mark. Um, you, your piece... No, no, there's, no, there's no question things are deteriorated to the point of, uh, of, of active hostility and non-communication to, to a very large extent. Yeah. Um, your piece uh, that I read over at ProjectSyndicate.org, The Roots of American Misery, in which you review 
uh, a handful of books, four uh, books from leading Ivy League scholars about, um, well, that question, examining the roots of American misery among uh, wide swaths of the population. And uh, you uh, sort of uh, strike upon a, a couple of common themes in your reviews and then some commentary associated with it. Let's start with the first one, inequality. This seems to be um, something that a lot of uh, left-leaning academics uh, have talked about, have written about. Thomas Piketty's uh, celebrated uh, uh, book on the topic, and then a couple of uh, academics you review here, the same thing. Um, so how do you uh, – uh, and, and of course this is part of the political discourse as well, the, the case that's being prosecuted mainly by candidates on the left. But um, the issue of inequality – and you write at the end of your piece something that is worth noting that the left doesn't like to note as much, which is that um, uh, Trump captured the states in 2016 with the least growth in, a, in inequality over the past half century while losing states in which inequality has increased the most. And how does the left square the circle on that? Well, it's a very interesting phenomenon, and it's a, a new paper that you, you're, you're citing that I've co-author opinion I've just published, uh, in, in which we point out that, you know, if you look at the electoral base of the Democratic Party, it's largely split between uh, relatively high-income urban professional communities uh, and uh, low-income uh, immigrant uh, minority communities in the African-American community. Uh, and as a result, uh, the, the states where, where you have the most unequal uh, economies have been dominant, predominantly democratic, true of New York, California, Connecticut, Massachusetts. Uh, all of these states are, 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 have this kind of dual economy. Uh, whereas the suburb, states that are largely rural or suburban and mostly white, uh, that don't have, that aren't dominated by finance or, or technology, let's say the, the, the South and the upper Midwest. Uh, have uh, been are either now solidly Republican or have been drifting in that direction. Uh, so it is a very straightforward and simple way to, to to kind of predict how the electoral college is going to go. Uh, what's happening in the South and Southwest, of course, is that both the urban communities and the minority communities have been growing, and as a result, Arizona is been basically coming over to the Democratic side. Nevada already went. Texas is close, not there. Georgia uh, close. So you're going to see a political transformation for democratic, on demographic grounds. Uh, it's not to say that inequality per se is a good or a bad thing, uh, but it's just a, a feature of the way American politics is organized these days. Right, but it, the left uh, seems, seems central to their argument that uh, we are uh, running to be elected to reduce income inequality, and where they are dominant, income inequality has uh, increased. And so how, how, how you know, how is no, that explained? No, I think it's the other way around. It's, it's where structural change in the economy has increased inequality. You've gotten a growth in the Democratic vote, uh, where the increases have been less profound. You've got an increase in the Republican vote. Uh, it's not that the Democrats are increasing inequality. But at the national level, and when you think about historically, the Democrats pursue policies that reduce inequality. Uh, that was true of the New Deal, and, and the result of that was the presidency of Dwight Eisenhower. It's true of the Great Society, and the result of that was the presidency of Richard Nixon. <laughs> so uh, Democratic policies, traditional ones, do in fact uh, strengthen the Republicans, and Republican policies, again, traditional ones that increase inequality, have tended to uh, generate the 
uh, you know, the ship back to the Democrats. So maybe there's this kind of self-stabilizing principle in American politics here. When we come back with Professor James Galbraith, I want to have him address a criticism he made of the authors of the books he reviewed on America's despair. They're a failure to uh, invoke the philosophies of Marx or Keynes in describing the inequality they argue besets the country. More with Professor Galbraith when we return. Show.com. We're back with Professor James Galbraith talking about the issue of inequality as uh, focused on by Ivy League scholars and books that he reviewed and then added his own commentary. And um, one of the issues raised is the unwillingness of those scholars to uh, color outside the line, such as to fold in a discussion of Marx and Keynes when it comes to remedies for what ails America. And I wonder why you think that is, even as they're discussing the issue of inequality, or they think at least a couple of them do, that inequality is the central issue. In well, income inequality. I, one of the things about these three books, and there were by two professors at Harvard, Robert Putnam and Michael Sandel, and a, another book by two professors at Princeton, co-authored Anne Case and Angus Deaton, is that writing from these very commanding heights of American academic life, they're under an enormous pressure to pull their punches politically and, and, and from a policy standpoint. So there's a certain menu of tired prescriptions to deal with it, with American economic difficulties that, in my view, don't really get to the core of the matter, and especially not in the face of the pandemic, where we're looking at, well, first of all, the consequences of the long-term decline of the industrial core of the country in the, in, in the Midwest. Uh, and then we're looking right now at, on the one hand, enormous difficulties in the advanced sectors because they serve world markets that aren't going anywhere, and in the services sector where tens of millions of people having lost their jobs and their incomes, they're not going to be buying the services that other people provide. So you've got a basically great difficulty in thinking about how the path forward unless you're prepared to really grasp the nettle and remobilize the country. You've got to take the sectors where we have capacity and turn them to public purpose, and you've got to do things for the services sector so that small businesses that actually employ people can survive in this environment with lower, smaller numbers of customers coming in, less income coming through the door. If you don't do that, everything's just going to fold up and you're going to have a very, very great difficulty reviving it. When you say repurposing uh, the productive sectors for public purpose, can you make that concrete uh, with an example? Sure. We have an important uh, aircraft industry in this country, which sells to a world market that isn't going to be buying aircraft for the foreseeable future because people have quit flying and the planes are on the ground. You don't buy new planes when you can't fly the ones you have. So there's an engineering capacity there and that can be uh, 
turn to other purposes, for example, uh, dealing with, with climate change or dealing with infrastructure issues to a degree, this kind of thing will have a lot of construction capacity that was going into things like commercial office buildings that people aren't going to be using. That needs to be repurposed. That way we need, of course, to do a great deal of, of rebuilding of our living spaces, of our, of our cities and so forth, to make them more livable, more attractive, and a, a better climate for the private businesses to thrive in than we've got now. So all of this can and should be done, but it, it isn't going to happen on its own. And so you're uh, suggesting that uh, sort of uh, a, uh, a resurgence of Keynesianism when it comes to economic thought to prevail on... on right, I'm careful about the term Keynesianism because it's come to mean just pouring money into the system. Okay. Now, one of the things I deeply believe is that people obviously need money right now because it buys them time and keeps them in groceries and rent. Uh, it isn't going to be enough. You really have to think about this the way Roosevelt thought about it in the New Deal and the way, way again, Roosevelt and his team thought about it when it came to building the capacity to fight the Second World War. You've got to think about what concretely you need to do, and then you've got to mobilize resources and people to do it. And that's what we should be doing as a country. Keynes, of course, was very much part of that mix, but the doctrine of Keynesianism since then has come to mean basically raise spending or cut taxes, and it doesn't much matter on what. Well, it does matter on what, and that's where we need to need to really develop um, our thinking right now. Do you see uh, a, perhaps an emerging uh, philosophical consensus, generally speaking, uh, among uh, some on uh, I, I would describe on, on the left as you? I don't know how you describe yourself, but and uh, those like Republicans like Marco Rubio who are talking about uh, common good capitalism, uh, others like Josh Howley, something in that vein. I don't know. I mean, at this point, I think I, I see more of a fracturing of views, uh, and I would—I'm I'm not necessarily opposed to that because uh, so much of what passes for consensus is simply the recycling of, of of old formulas. So you have the you have Republicans and conservatives recycling the the Reagan formula, and um, you know the liberals recycling the, the let's call it the Obama formula. Or the, uh, some degree also the, the Clinton formula, a number of different ones, and none of these are satisfactory. So to the extent that we have can have an open discussion first, maybe we'll get to a consensus that makes sense. Uh, I'd hate to see a consensus form while people, while people still don't have the, the picture firmly in mind of what actually is happening. He is James Galbraith, Professor of Government and Chair in Government Business Relations at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin, former Executive Director of the Joint Economic Committee and author of Inequality, what everyone needs to know, as well as welcome to the poison chalice, the destruction of Greece and the future of Europe. Professor Galbraith, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to the show. At his uh, rally in Moon Township, Pennsylvania last night, President Trump uh, took up the issue of, well, the Socialist Spice Girls, AOC plus three. He doesn't want uh, socialists and communists, as he termed them or referenced other unnamed communists making decisions about this country, particularly in the energy sector. They, they have different concepts, right? Uh, they have the Green New Deal where there will be no energy almost of any kind. Now it's, it's crazy. 
thought of by AOC plus three. You know AOC? Not a good student, not good at anything, but she's got a good line of crap, I'll tell you. Is that for she's got a hell of a line. And she's got, a, you know, she's radical left, but she's not as bad as some of them. How about Omar of Minnesota? We're going to win the state of Minnesota because of her, they say. She's telling us how to run our country. How did you do where you came from? How is your country doing? They're going to tell. She's going to tell us. She's telling us how to run our country. And you know what? The Democrats in Congress, you have to see what they're doing. Their stance on Israel, it's like a whole different world. It's like from 10 years ago, it's like a different world. And we want to keep our world the way it was and the way it's going to be. We've got the greatest country on earth, and we're going to keep it that way. We don't need socialists, and we don't need communists telling us how to run our country. I'm not sure he'll get that kind of response in California, but maybe in certain parts, uh, just on the Green New Deal matter and energy policy, we've talked a, a good bit about the California wildfires from the perspective of land management. What about from the perspective of uh, the utilities and uh, the management of the energy that they provide? Uh, for more on that topic specifically, we're pleased to be joined by Jonathan Lesser, Ph.D., President of Continental Economics and Adjunct Fellow with the Manhattan Institute. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. So um, you uh, zero in on this uh, issue, this policy issue of uh, utilities like PG&E, the state's largest electric utility in California, using preemptive power shutdowns as a means to you know, manage their ability to provide power and, and protect their infrastructure. That's correct. And, and the implications of that policy on the uh, lives of uh, Californians. That's right. So what PG&E has done is to prevent, starting last year, to prevent wildfires in their service territory, they shut down power in large swaths of their service territory. The most recent one earlier this month shut power to several hundred thousand customers, which means almost a half million people. And those shutoffs are designed so the wildfires cannot prevent their equipment, will not lead to wildfires that, you know, for example, in 2018 killed 85 people uh, because they had faulty equipment. I mean, so this is sort of a combination of bad public policy or certainly public policy that imposes more costs than it confers benefits, I, I believe you're arguing. The confluence of poor land management within the utility uh, making these preemptory, instituting these preemptory shutdowns, what's the impact on actual California families? Right, and it's not just bad land management, as you've discussed. It's also the fact that PG&E hasn't maintained its system properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't trimmed trees correctly. It hasn't replaced aging transmission lines. In 2018, a campfire was caused by a failure of a piece of equipment that was almost a century old. It's a confluence of everything, and PG&E has decided that the best way they can reduce wildfire risk is simply to shut the power off to various swaths of, of their customers. And in their, their risk management plan, they don't include the cost to their customers as a cost. Basically, all that spoiled food, 
lost business, lost wages, in some cases health impacts of people who rely on health care equipment to keep them alive, that doesn't enter into PG&E's equation in terms of costs and benefits of these preemptive shutdowns. And, and you've been able to try and get a handle in terms of quantifying the costs? I mean, some, some of them are obvious just in terms of uh, you know, spoiled food, lost work, those sorts of things, health impacts. But is there any way to try to quantify the uh, uh, the cost and benefit? Yeah, in our in our Manhattan Institute report uh, that was published in April, uh, we did that. We quantified the costs uh, and benefits of the shutdowns as best we could, in terms of you know what's what's the cost to consumers from losing their electricity. Uh, it's called value of lost load. And that, that concept's been around for about 50 years. Um, and so when we looked at it, uh, we found that even when we made these assumptions that every single piece of PG&E equipment was in terrible condition, that everything would be uh, affected, that, uh, that a wildfire would be at an absolute certainty if they didn't uh, shut down the power, what we found is that unless you start affecting, if you can reduce the effects to just a few customers, the costs to those customers exceed the benefits from avoided wildfire risk. And so we concluded that this is just not a very good policy from a cost-benefit standpoint. Uh, and really what, what it is is uh, a CYA type of policy. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, you have... According to a lot of the uh, forestry professionals, land management experts, you have sort of a failure at the federal level. You have a failure at the state level on the land management front. And uh, then you also have a failure uh, with respect to essentially a government-conferred monopoly in PG&E. That's correct. So it's all the way around. So it's, uh, it's a real clean sweep for, uh, uh, for, for government or government-sponsored enterprises. Uh, and the people paying the price, of course, are California California families who all the way by the way are also paying very high energy costs relative to the rest of the nation. That's right and and in terms of what they're going to pay in the future, uh PG&E is proposing to spend billions and billions of dollars uh you know 5 billion dollars on just uh some of their transmission system alone uh over a 3 year 3 or 4 year period between 2023 and 2026 that's their next their next rate case that they'll be filing uh, early next year is talking about. And that's this is going to be going on for decades, uh, they've said, to fix their whole system. And so California customers, in addition to uh, dealing with uh, blackouts from lack of renewable energy supplies, uh, are going to be facing electricity rates that just skyrocket. And that's going to do wonderful things uh, for the, the California economy. Yeah. He is, a, he is Jonathan Lusser. He's a Ph.D., president of Continental Economics and adjunct fellow with the Manhattan Institute. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Appreciate it. Take Bye. care. The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the show, and uh, we close out tonight uh, with some um, you know, innovative marketing slash policy making out of New York City. Don't get to say that much, but you know, the public transit's taken a bit of a hit in ridership uh, during the pandemic. You. 
may have noticed. I know uh, the trains uh, that uh, run from the city to the suburbs in Chicago, they're uh, down about 90 percent ridership. Nobody's on the MTA in New York either, which is uh, why New York and boy, this is a story that is just built for the New York Post, isn't it? New York, uh, the uh, Metropolitan Transportation Authority's board is uh, poised to ensure that the only number two allowed on the MTA is the train line. Zing. The opener to the post story. The board is slated to formally ban pooping on its subways, buses and transit facilities during its meeting today. I'll let you know as soon as I get word. Now, uh, technically, technically, uh, defecating is already subject to a hundred dollar fine under the uh, uh, the rule against creating a nuisance hazard or unsanitary condition, including but not limited to spitting or urinating. But uh, the board felt the need and boy, I would have loved to have been an executive session to listen to this debate. The board uh, felt the need to add defecating to the list of bodily expulsions. Complaints of uh, soiled subway trains surged in 2019, according to MTA data. Why do they think they're living in San Francisco or something? The agency insisted at the time that um, the increase in reports of discussing subway case was the result of more vigilant riders. But transit workers, uh, their ingenuity, uh, did a little contest trash train photo contest last October to highlight the filth and protest cuts to cleaning crews. And so this is a <laughs> this is a way to respond to um, apparently what the reality in the MTA is. Yeah, this is something that, you know, it really needs to be formalized, uh, you know, lest you plead ignorance. But I I don't know, in the era of of decriminalization and non prosecution, it seems like this um, symbolic expression should be uh, should be protected. The uh, rule and, and, and here we go again, you know, the, the rules are this, this discriminatory or discriminate, discriminate against the homeless. If the homeless are disproportionately minority, is this not racist? The uh, rules do include policies targeting homeless people who live in the system. They require riders to exit subway cars at the end of the line, ban people from lingering for more than an hour, bar riders from bringing large shopping carts onto trains as well. Yeah. Well, I don't know who these MTA board members are, but clearly that they think their defecation doesn't stink. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Oh, by the way, I got it. I almost forgot. I got to get <laughs> the best comment on Twitter. <laughs> Reasonable follow up question to the news of the MTA board moving to ban pooping on buses and trains. The question, is it still OK if we defecate on the ferry? Great follow up. I don't know. We'll have to hear from the board that uh, New York that governs the ferries. And I'll let you know when we get word from them as well. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.